October was record month for us in 2020. We beat 2019. It wasn't our best month all the time, but it was the best probably in the last 12, 13 months. We're not just trying to get people to shift to a different channel. Can you get the right amount of clients where you can effectively deliver the service model that they want? The ones who went kicking and screaming when they had to go home. Now you've got to find them. You've got to put a low jack on them to find them, to get them to even come into an in-person meeting. You had people making bets on who was going to be president, of course. And to try to do a, a conversion and a merger in the middle of a pandemic. So that's been very, very interesting. And those mature advisors who can now not worry about succession planning because they'll stay electronically tethered to us forever. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. This month, we are joined by Angela Holliday of Frost Brokerage Services, Kevin McCarthy of SunTrust Investment Services, and Josh Searcy of Independent Bank, a client institution of our sponsor, Ameriprise. In addition to the monthly trends, we will hear them discuss what has powered program success through this year of challenges and critical 2021 strategic initiatives influenced by lessons learned during the pandemic. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. We will then turn it over to Jana Capaletti, the creator of bankchannelresearch.com, who will kick us off with a trending overview. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at Ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hi, this is Janet Capaletti, the Managing Director of Research for Staff as Partners and the creator of bankchannelresearch.com with some highlights from October 2020, which in many ways turned out to be the best month of the year with FC productivity, managed money fees, and household revenue penetration at their highest point in 2020. Fixed annuity activity was stable month to month, but the VAs are making a comeback with production up 25% since September and 20% year over year. VA revenue last month reached $222 per million in deposits, the highest level since May 2017. Total FC revenue rose 5% year-over-year, and when you isolate our top 10 programs, 
They have revenue over $15 million per year. Their FC revenue shot up 13% to an average of $62,000 per rep, which is a new record for that group and for the industry. In September, which was Life Insurance Awareness Month, several programs reported a spike in life sales, pulling the average up to $45 per million. This, of course, cast a dark shadow over the record low production in October when revenue penetration tanked at $25. This really depresses our life insurance geek, host Bob Mattel. All quarterly, year-to-date, and year-over-year figures are available on bankchannelresearch.com. Thanks again to LPL and Infinex for providing much of the important data used in our monthly analysis. Over to you, Scott and Bob. Hello, I am Scott Stathis, and I will be your host along with Bob Mattel. This podcast is jointly produced by BISA and Stathis Mattel. And we want to thank Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group for their sponsorship and support. So we are joined today by three industry executives who will each introduce themselves momentarily. But first, I'd like to hand it off to Bob Mattel, our co-host, to introduce himself. Bob? Well, I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-producer. And believe it or not, this is the fifth installment now of the BISA Industry Trend Watch. So let's start going with it. All right, so let's uh, let's have our guests introduce themselves. Angela, would you like to kick us off? Sure. I'm Angela Holiday, president of Frost Investment Services. We're a hybrid firm, broker dealer, and investment advisor. We have about 44 advisors. We don't have a platform program. Assets under management about nine billion, and our annual revenues are a total of 25 million. All right. Thanks, Angela. Kevin. Good morning. My name is Kevin McCarthy. I'm Director of Integration and Partnerships for Truist Wealth. We're in the middle of a merger right now, so we're still working through some financial. So I'm going to keep some of the things at a very high level. But we roughly have a, a thousand financial advisors. We don't have any platform reps at this stage of the game. We do have premier bankers who are affluent bankers. They make referrals to our financial advisors. And we also have wealth advisors that deal with clients a million dollars or more at Truist, and they also make referrals. They don't directly fulfill on products on behalf of clients, but they do make referrals to us. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. And Josh? Yeah, I'm Josh Searcy. I'm the Vice President of Trust and Investment Services at Independence Bank. We manage about $950 million. We have two financial advisors or brokers. We have 22 officers or admins in the trust department. Our annual revenues are about $4.6 All right. Thank you all for joining us this month. So today's discussion is going to be split essentially in two segments. First, we're going to start with trending like we normally do, and then we're going to end up with some strategic questions and discussion as we go into, you know, as we round out this year and go into next year. So let's start with the monthly trending, and uh, we're focusing on October and November this month. So as you know, we track industry statistics on a monthly basis. And we uh, when we look at October, it seems to be for the industry, one of the if not the best month for the year so far. And we also when we look at October this year compared to October last year, we also see that it seems to be ahead of October last year. So given everything we've been through, in this 
<laughs> different year of 2020. That's fairly impressive, I think, right? So I'd like to hear from each of you how how your program productivity is looking compared to what we see industry-wide, and also give us a feel for how November is shaping up since we're halfway through November as we record this. So Josh, you want to you wanna, uh, take the first swing at this question? Sure. We were very consistent with the industry in October. We had a it wasn't our best month all time, but it was the best probably in the last 12, 13 months. We saw a big uptick in uh, use of structured products in October, which seems to be contrary to the trend that, that you guys gave us. But I think the big thing was you had people making bets on who was going to be president, of course, with some of that. And then you had opportunities to sell, which I thought, and you know, and move people to manage money. So that was a big thing for us that month. October of last year, we were still in a transition to a new broker dealer. So we did, we had a very poor October of 19 because we were redoing how we do business and, and really focusing on managed money sector of our business. November, however, has not been good as of today. Activities gone way down. Of course, with the COVID issues, particularly here in Kentucky, have increased dramatically. And even in our, our little part of Kentucky, Western Kentucky, it's increased dramatically. So that has had a chilling effect. I think also the outcome of the election had a chilling effect on new business. So, you know, pretty consistent with, with the trends that, that you guys provided us and gives you kind of an idea of what we're looking at for the rest of the year. Yeah, and Josh, just a, a quick follow-up question. Were your advisors back in the branches? We've been here almost all the time. I have, what I've done is sort of if it's a redundant type of officer, a redundant type of job, we've separated them to that extent. But And our lobbies have been closed for a pretty good chunk of the summer. And then when we closed again today, but most of our guys have been here, guys and gals have been here. So, uh, you know, we've been very fortunate, but it has been a challenge. It really has. Yeah. So the chilling effect of November can be pronounced if your advisors weren't working remotely already, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I agree with them. Yeah. So that makes sense. Kevin, how do things look at your program? We had a strong month in October. So fees were very strong, asset levels very high. And we also saw a return of transactional revenue. That was much better for work in October. Our branch advisors left the branches in March and came back in September. So we saw a nice increase in October as a result of that. So net new assets remain very strong. That's always a good leading indicator for, for future success. As far as November, it'll be a little bit lighter, but I think that's going to be far more due to Thanksgiving holiday than anything else. We had a good month in October last year, and we had a good month this year, so it wasn't necessarily a record, but a strong month overall, and and once again, a very solid improvement in transaction business. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm constantly impressed the last few months, given everything that we're dealing with, that we as a channel have really turned out some strong performance. So, you know, kudos to everybody out there that are running programs very successfully. I think, you know, as we look at the stats and Janet collects them every month, we didn't expect to see this impressive productivity through this very difficult period, but it speaks to the adaptability, I think, of our programs and our advisors. So that's very impressive. So congratulations, you guys. So Angela, how have things looked at Frost? So October was record month for us in 2020. We beat 2019. And I think for us, 
the management obviously was our biggest leader. And, you know, looking at those, our advisors are very senior advisors. So been with Frost 20, 25 years, have enormous books of business and looking for those opportunities. It's that, you know, 80, 20 rule where they're mining their books of business a lot more diligently, finding opportunities, having good stories to tell about making it through all of the market hysteria. So November, kind of slow, kind of slow. We've had a little bit of whiplash where we reopen branches in October, but then Texas, you know, is pandemic fatigued. And so we had an unusual and, you know, leading spike in the nation. So drawing back on some of those folks going back into the branches. So looking at, well, you can go, well, no, stay at home. So I think a little bit of whiplash going on in November, especially the Thanksgiving holiday, everyone is kind of winding down and preparing for that. So November's just tracking a little bit slow. Yeah, it's, you know, obviously October, we had quarterly fees hit too. So when we look at it industry-wide, it was a really good month, but still even given that, I mean, we've had other months, obviously, with quarterly fees hit, it, it still looked like a record. Completely understandable that November may slow down a little bit. I think it kind of does every year. But, you know, Janet, when she gets the final numbers for November, will let us know what uh, what November looks like. So, Kevin, you mentioned transactional revenue, and I know Bob has a question about transactional revenue. And, uh, you know, it, watching transactional revenue has been interesting just because of the rate play that's been going on. But, Bob, you're up. Why don't you take the next question? Absolutely. And Angela, it's great to see that what you were reporting just before is indicative of what we were actually seeing, that October is one of the best months of 2020 and then ahead of 2019. So it's nice to see that you're supporting the research that we've gathered. But back to um, transactional revenue, it's been on the rise every month since May, but it fell for the first time in October. And I'd love to understand, uh, Josh, what do you attribute that to? Are you seeing anything? And is that continuing in November as well? Actually, our transactional revenue was up in October significantly. So I think some of that had to do with Kentucky's a fairly conservative state, just generally speaking. And we got to a point where you had some opportunities to sell and move into other products. And some of those products, you know, have some downside protection, which is very attractive, really good for customers as a hedge play on other equities. So I think that was it primarily. And November, I think it's just it's just the traffic's way down. So, yeah. It's hard. I don't think that has anything to do necessarily with the market itself. It's just simply, I think people are worn out with COVID. I think they're taking care of their families, getting ready for Thanksgiving, that type of thing. So it's just a different environment in November significantly. It does seem that the environment is constantly changing and it's a month-to-month opportunity. I'll come back to you in a second to dig more into uh, what might be going on with fixed versus variable annuities. But Angela, after that record month, what are you seeing with transactional revenue in your program? We're the same as Josh, that we are having the same amount of activity in transactional business. Haven't had a dip. A lot to do historically with how we organized to begin with. So we started as a broker dealer and years into that process, we started doing managed business, but did it up through the trust platform. So we were looking at much higher entry points where the minimum to open that account was 500000 So we had a great delta in between. So that's just been our backbone. And we're still trending at a 54-46 brokerage lead in that split of, you know, revenue. So that's usual business for us. So we haven't necessarily seen a decline. Okay. 
And, and Kevin, I have a, it's almost a two-part question for you. I know you're in the middle of putting two large programs together. Is there a difference from the um, uh, heritage of each individual program? And how does it look like from a combination perspective in terms of uh, the transactional revenue? Was the SunTrust different, business different than the BB&T and now as it becomes truest? Well, good question. Um, I would say that there were a lot of similarities. So we've got really a two-tiered type of a program. We've got our private client group, which works more with wealth teams and typically works with higher net worth clients. And then we've got our branch financial advisors uh, investment services group that operates more with affluent clients, typically between 100,000 and a million. I would say Heritage BB&T in terms of on the, the branch side was a little bit heavier on the transactional side than, than Heritage SunTrust. But in general, the mixes were overall pretty close. And so, as I mentioned earlier, transactional business for us improved in October. It sounds like for all three of us, it improved, which is a good thing. I think a lot of it for us was not being in the branches. And when you're not having that connectivity with some of the branch partners out there, we saw a dip in referrals over the summer. So we're pre-COVID levels in terms of referrals back to our financial advisors, and we're seeing an improvement in our business as a result. Are you seeing any difference between fixed annuities and variable annuities? The numbers are suggesting that fixed annuities are dropping and there's a rise in variable. Is that a rate play? Are things changing from a rate environment or is it just a change in, in behaviors? I would say we're actually seeing an increase in both. Clearly, there's a rate play right now that's causing some shifts in business, but we actually see a pretty nice little spread in, in between twos and tens right now. So I think there's a little bit more spread in terms of, or there's a potential for a little bit more spread in terms of some of the fixed annuities. We're also seeing a, an increase in variable annuities. We're doing that not only through transactional business, but we're also doing that on an advisory platform. And that's seeing, we're seeing some nice growth there as well. Angela, I see you nodding. I think you have a similar comment. Very much so. That it's that behavior that you mentioned that's just changing. And so, you know, you look at the environment and the pandemic environment specifically, that back to Josh's point around downside protection and being able to have clients who are probably more proactive now this October at looking at year-end planning and making changes just because of the pandemic and seeing a different audience out there who are looking for a different investment. So to be able to fill that gap with a VA has been been pretty good for us. We haven't been a strong VA shop, so we're seeing an increase both in fixed and VAs. Yeah, Josh, intuitively, by your comments earlier, I would say that you're probably the reverse of what I was just suggesting. But what's been your experience on fixed versus variable? Well, we've had you know more more success with the variable product uh, of late. I think because of the volatility and people were kind of, they wanted some protection there. And that's really just been, it's just been an easy, easy kind of seller. And it works great for the customer. There has been increased interest in the fix because we're all bank people, generally very conservative investors. And uh, with CD rates, just nowhere, uh, the fix becomes a fairly decent alternative. So I expect more of that probably over the next three or four months. Uh, really going forward because I don't see a lot in the CD market for folks. So that's pretty much where we're at. Well, we are certainly at unprecedented times and it looks like this pandemic is going to have an extended time with us. And I know I think Scott has some follow-up questions that uh, go down that path as well. Yeah. I mean, let's kind of shift to, um, I'll call it just strategic, but just it's more as we look at what's going on in this environment where we've actually been able to maintain some impressive productivity 
Now, let's get a little granular and talk about your advisors. So as you look across the board at your advisors, is it generally the case that productivity is up with all the advisors or are there a handful of advisors that are really standouts and kind of hitting it out of the park in this environment and others are struggling? And if so, what are some doing that others aren't? Just curious to get your perspective from an analysis standpoint, what's going on out there and has it been the case that some of your advisors are able to adapt more easily to this fluctuating environment of doing it remote, doing it in the branch, doing it remote, et cetera. Maybe Angela, you can kick us off and give us your thoughts in that regard as you look at your advisors. Our more senior advisors, which probably 70% of our advisors are more senior advisors. So we've struggled with a very legacy program that within the past couple of years, we've made shifts around recruiting and building teams. But those advisors that really started the program have, like I said, enormous books of business. So a lot of clients were unattended. So they were working with those top clients with recurring business and referrals in that sense. So they were the ones who went kicking and screaming when they had to go home. It was they couldn't do it. It was impossible this is all they'd ever known. And now they're, you've got to find them. You've got to put a low jack on them to find them, to get them to even come into an in-person meeting. But they have adapted very well and found so much productivity and their clients, they're much more accessible to them. So they're adding that additional layer of value. They're getting referrals from clients. So they have made this natural organic shift that before it wasn't like they needed this direct sales management. They were in competition either with each other or themselves. So it's really been our newer advisors who were furniture in the branches and they relied a lot on referrals and working with partners as opposed to the more experienced advisors. They had those relationships already, whether they were second story, whether they were working out of you know, their home part-time, they had those relationships ingrained. So it's really been the newer advisors where we're trying to be creative and come up with opportunities for them to engage with clients, with prospects, again, with partners, as those partners too are in and out of the branch locations, whether they're on rotations or they're working from home. So it's just really been our less tenured or experienced advisors that are we're seeing the struggle, but we're seeing the pop definitely from those mature advisors who can now not worry about succession planning because they'll stay electronically tethered to us forever. That's a very interesting observation. You know, I've never made that connection between the advisors that have been successful and have made the transition into this remote environment and certainly have experienced now process efficiency gains that they that they didn't know before, right? But I never made the connection between that and, and succession planning. So they can semi-retire, but still be working from their couch at home now because they're getting so comfortable with this remote gig, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Like there have been a few that have said, you know, I was going to hang it up in the next three years, but I could go on another seven to 10 years. I'm like, that is awesome. Yeah. That, that, that's very interesting. I, I've, I've never thought about that, but that actually makes a ton of sense. And that's good. I mean, I think that's good for us in our channel, right? So, so awesome. Kevin, I, I see you kind of chuckling there. Are you seeing some of the same stuff? We definitely are. As I mentioned, we have our advisors are working with wealth programs, with the wealth teams. They are really doing much better 
than our branch advisors. But that said, we've got a tremendous amount of branch advisors that are doing well. So the key differentiator I saw is, are you embracing technology? Are you having regular conversations with your clients? Are you doing the proper planning and are you embracing technology? Those are some key factors that are differentiating the people that are doing very well versus the people that are struggling in this type of an environment. Yeah, it's uh, it's all about technology lately, right? If you embrace the technology, especially remote technology, and really learn how to use it well, you're thriving. And you know, we're seeing things like e-signature, which has been out there for a while, but a lot of advisors resisted it. Now that's it. <laughs> you know, right. everybody's using it now. Which, if we only knew, we would have invested in those companies, right? <laughs> yeah. Josh, how about you? Same thing. It's very similar. Only thing I would add is I've only got two or three guys really that do it day to day. They were out front of the pandemic in some ways as far as communication goes. It's like, you're going to see red numbers. Let's tell them why they're seeing red numbers and let's not hide it on our desk. So it's the same thing you would always have done, get ahead of that. But the technology made it so much easier to communicate it and to stay in touch with those customers easily, more frequently. So tried and true message, but a much more efficient way of delivering it. Yeah. So I have one more question for you, and then I know Bob has one more question. So I'll stay on the strategic level here. And as you look towards next year with everything we've learned this year, including things like process efficiencies gained because of some of this remote work, and I hear a lot of advisors saying things like, well, now I know that there are certain types of meetings I can always conduct remotely and other meetings that I definitely want to do face-to-face, but now I have options, right? And I can manage my calendar a lot more efficiently. So anyway, so there's a lot, a lot of interesting stuff that has come from this year. So what I'm wondering is, as you look towards 2021, do you have any initiatives that are particularly interesting or that you're excited about? Anything new as you're doing your 2021 planning? Anything you want to tell us about going into next year that is of interest to you guys? And Angela, do you want to take the first swing at this one again? Sure. So I think just company-wide, we focused on what we've learned during the pandemic. And so being able to look at those efficiencies. So I said earlier, we have a very legacy model where the majority of our advisors have sales assistants and everyone we've given people the liberty to do whatever is right for the client. And if there's a specialized area that makes sense for you, do business as long as it makes sense. But then that creates, everybody does business a different way. Everybody uses their assistant a different way. And so, of course, there are some inefficiencies. And one of the things with the pandemic pushing us remotely, you know, we figured out which assistants were literally just making copies and getting coffee for people was like, that is not the best use of our talent. So being able to relook at the regions and coverage and how we're using assistants, being able to maybe consider centralized models, sharing assistance. So that's something that we've started planning this year looking how we're using human resources now that everyone has dipped their toe in the pool of better productivity from scheduling to coverage and what meeting with people looks like, what schedules look like. So really just taking really a backwards look at what we did learn, focus on those efficiencies and making sure we're implementing them. And from a client perspective, what came out of the pandemic 
of course, the emphasis on financial planning, making sure that that is a hallmark of what we're doing, whether it's goal-based planning, broad-based planning, making sure to lead with that and getting some of those junior advisors more involved in that. So really, those are the two things that we're just really looking to be very keen on in 2021. Yeah. Well, you know, good for you for taking the benefits, the positive stuff that you've learned and turning them into initiatives going forward. And through all the negative stuff that has been going on with this pandemic, uh, at least we're finding some silver lining in it, right? Which is great. Kind of makes you feel good about the, like I said, the adaptability of our channel and you guys running these programs. So good for you, Josh. Any thoughts in those veins? No, I think she hit it right on the head. You really learned who was driving your business internally, who was getting things done and getting them moving. So that's a very good point. And we've used that time to really try to get our advisors to give their assistants more to do, frankly, because they do and let our folks work with customers more and more, particularly now that you can do it from your desk. So that's huge. And I think the planning thing is a tremendous goal for us next year. We started to get there. We're learning more and more about it. Our senior advisors are nervous about it, of course, because of the technology element of it. But they, they're starting to see the value there, and that's been a really good place to grow for. So we think 2021, That's I'm just kind of mimicking Angela and where we're heading. So, Yeah. One of the things that's a reoccurring theme in our monthly interviews for these podcasts is financial planning. And it's incredibly clear that The advisors that have done the best through the pandemic are the ones that leverage financial planning because they were able to have much more substantive discussions with their clients that calmed their clients down and had their clients realize through this volatile period that they're going to be okay because there's a plan in place. And let's just look at the plan and manage the situation accordingly. And that's really worked well. So I think one of the things that has come from this is kind of the filtering of those that use planning and those that are, you know, kind of old school transactional and the ones that are old school transactional are not surviving as well as those that do leverage planning and are more advisory centric. And I say that from both perspectives, right? They're doing advisory fee-based business, but they're also very advice centric and they see that as their value proposition, not transactional advisors see as their value proposition, being able to recommend the right products. That's a little bit of a different mindset. So anyways, this is really an interesting year as you look at the ways advisors are working their business and what is proving to be the better models than other models. So I think that's good stuff. Kevin, thoughts? Well, I mean, first and foremost, we're trying to bring two broker-dealers together. So it's been very interesting to try to do a, a conversion and a merger in the middle of a pandemic. So that's been very, very interesting in in 2020. But some of the other things that were already said, I mean, the leading with planning, Angela said that, so important. If you can really do that, it not only helps your practice, but if you can get the client to buy into that, you're not selling a client anything, you're executing on a plan. And I think that's really important. Some of the technology things that I had talked about previously, Scott, you mentioned on an e-signature that's been around for a while, but a lot of people didn't embrace it, as you said. Now, more and more people are doing that using tools such as Salesforce to effectively run your practice. Very important to do that. We're working a lot on digital capabilities. Um, so not only for our advisors, but what is the client looking for in terms of their experience as well? So digital is playing a big role in what we're trying to do. We're also working on things like service models. 
how often does the client want to be touched? In what manner do they want to be touched? And making sure that we're using technology to help with the service models. And we're also talking a lot about gearing ratios. How many clients can you effectively serve? We're not just trying to get people to shift to a different channel, but how can you get the right amount of clients where you can effectively deliver the service model that they want and and you want to deliver as part of your practice as well? So those are just a few high-level things we're working on for 2021. Yeah, Kevin, just two thoughts in that regard. The first is that given that you're trying to merge two broker-dealers during a pandemic, your hair hasn't gotten any more gray, so good for you. <laughs> What's left of it is not gotten more gray. <laughs> yeah. And the um, the other thing is, now that I tried to make a joke, I forget what the other <laughs> what the other thing was. <laughs> Thank you, more bald jokes, Scott. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll come back to it if I remember, but I'm going to hand it off to Bob because he has a uh, a question on his favorite subject, which is life insurance. Well, and I'm going to go back and dig into the numbers for this last question. And as the resident insurance geek, each month I get to ask the insurance question. And I really don't even want to ask this one, but the insurance production in October was at record levels. It was September, of course, and Life Insurance Awareness Month but it dramatically reversed in October, which ended up being the worst month so far for life sales. What the heck? Angela, can you enlighten us at all on uh, what might be happening? Does every month have to be Insurance Awareness Month? (laughs) So I'll say that we are not really good in the life insurance space. So I don't know that October was indicative of how awful we are or that we could actually plummet beneath awful. So um, we've looked, we have an insurance agency with Frost where we we're partnering with a couple of those guys regionally. So in Houston and San Antonio, beginning to pair up, it's the age old advisor. It's too much time. There are all of the traditional excuses. And so pairing with our insurance partners is helping them really kind of wrap their heads around something's better than nothing. But I think as we continue to go down the road pushing financial planning, that it's without merit to not be able to have or address insurance or without seeing those gaps, you are going to have to address them. So this year, I believe we had a, a financial planning incentive. And so that goes away 2021. So looking at having a little bit more accountability there, being able to leverage our partners and then having sales management drip a lot more on those folks and being able to address that it is a gap. Why aren't we proactively working in that direction? So hopefully next time we do this call, I won't have to talk about how awesomeless we are and we'll be able to move the needle. Absolutely. Your point is well noted. Financial planning without an insurance component is an investment plan, not quite a financial plan. What about up an independence bank? Well, I think we are actually worse than awful. We do virtually zero. We've begun to educate ourselves on it. And of course, we only have, like I said, three advisors. So you don't want to get too far out of what you do well. So we have a lot to learn. I don't have much to offer on that. No problem, Josh. That unfortunately is a consistent theme throughout the bank programs. We've been hovering at around 3% for years. And We did see the ratchet up in September, probably again, due to focus and attention, which is a lesson for all. Kevin, what do you have to share with us? 
you know, not a lot else to share. I think planning is the key component there and making sure that you're addressing all forms of risk management is very important. But I think the industry, as you mentioned, has a tremendous opportunity to do much better on behalf of our clients. The needs are there. I think a lot of times the financial advisors are just not overly comfortable with that. Our production has been steady. It did not dip in October, but it didn't spike up in September either. So, I mean, it's just been fairly consistent throughout the year. We've got a lot of room to improve on that area. Okay. Well, since this is a BISA podcast, let me point everyone to the February 13th edition of Portfolio. There's an article in there that Scott and I authored on why we suck at insurance. So that has a lifetime of shelf life there with Portfolio. So let me end with reminding everybody that the February 13th issue of BISA's Portfolio Magazine, which is online, why we suck at insurance. And let's see if we can change that in 2021. Scott, off to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll one-up you there, Bob. The other thing that I think would be of interest to anybody listening is that we just released today, actually, a uh, one-hour podcast called Fixing Life Insurance Sales for our channel. And we'll be sending out a, uh, a promotion for that soon, which is very relevant. The discussion in that podcast is very relevant for this last subject that we're talking about here. So just a shameless plug. Kevin, I remembered what I wanted to say before. <laughs> okay. What struck me as you were describing your initiatives going into 2021 is that, and I think this is accurate, almost everything that you mentioned focuses on the client experience, right? Service levels, et cetera. And if you really think hard about what our differentiators could be, right? as people and programs working in a commoditized industry, the client experience is the single biggest lever for differentiation. And what I mean by that is it's what the clients of our advisors experience as they go through the process of working with our advisors, right? That's critical. And I think for too long, we have taken that for granted, meaning we haven't tried enough to make that client experience consistent and not only consistent, but make sure it is of the level that it needs to be to reflect the professionality that we need to reflect as a channel, right? So that client experience, and you know, Bob has heard me say this time and time again, in my book, your process is your product, right? If you're an advisor, the only thing you have to sell is your process, because the products that you sell are not your products. They're other people's and companies' products, the annuities, the advisory accounts. Your product is your process. And you know your process is the client experience. So the more we can do as a channel to upgrade our client experience, the more competitive we're going to be as a channel in the overall financial services industry. And it struck me, Kevin, as you were describing your initiatives going forward, every one of them is focusing on the client experience. So good for you. And I, and I think that's becoming more and more clear as we go through this pandemic and things seem to be more acute, the client experience means everything, right? So again, let's as a channel, make sure that we're spending the appropriate amount of time refining that client experience. And I think we'll all be in great shape if we do that. So kudos all around. So I, I think it's a wrap. And Angela, Kevin, Josh, thank you all for volunteering to participate in this discussion. It was great. Your contributions are very appreciated. And Bob, I believe you have some closing remarks. Yes. And again, thanks to all those that are responsible for this month. And it's our fifth installment now of the BISA Industry Trend Watch, produced by Status Mattel. And again, thanks to Angela Holiday from Frostbank, Kevin McCarthy from Truist, 
Josh Siri from Independence Bank, Jeff Hartney, Jason Myers from BISA, couldn't do it without Janet Capaletti and all the numbers and research that she provides to us all each month. And a special shout out to Chris Melton from Ameriprise for sponsoring this, our fifth installment of the Industry Trend Watch. We hope you all listen in for the next podcast we'll have in about a month. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. Thanks again, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this month's BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast episode. Thanks to Ameriprise for their ongoing support. We would also like to thank Angela Holliday, Kevin McCarthy, and Josh Searcy for sharing their insights and perspectives. Finally, be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.